0: We're underway here at the Glenn Show. I'm Glenn Lowry. Uh, I teach at Brown University, professor of economics there. I'm host of the Glenn Show, which can be found at glennlowry.substack.com and at YouTube forward slash C forward slash Glenn Lowry Show. And I'm with Lawrence Kotlikoff. Larry is professor of economics at Boston University, an old, old friend of mine, dear, good friend of mine outstanding economist and frequent guest here at the Glenn Show where we talk about economic policy issues amongst other things. So welcome back, Larry. I was your best
1: man and uh, I was your boss for a while. I hired you to be you. You stayed to be you for a bit with us. Uh, was...
0: Professors don't have bosses, Larry. <laughs>
1: yeah, I'm not pretend <laughs> boss. Nobody was gonna, nobody's going to control Glenn Alry.
0: Larry is an old dear friend. We've been friends for a long time. I I joined the BU faculty in 1991. That's going to be exactly 30 years ago. Yeah. Uh, As a professor, Larry helped to recruit me with uh, John Silber's support, the late John Silber, former president of Boston University, away from Harvard, where I was ensconced as a tenured professor at the Kennedy School. But they they, uh, persuaded me to walk across the river. I have no regrets, none whatsoever. Had 14 good years in the economics department at Boston University. And yes, Larry presided very effectively as best man at my recent wedding four years ago to the lovely Lawan Lowry, <laughs> my wife and life partner. She's not here to show herself. She sometimes makes cameo appearances. She does, okay, tell
1: her to come in, give, her, give you some. <laughs> <laughs> no, I don't
0: think I'm gonna do that. She's off in another part of this house doing something. <laughs> okay. But yeah, Larry and I, we're fellow economists, and uh, both of us are public intellectuals after a fashion. Larry uh, has columns in Forbes and other uh, places where economic policy issues are being debated. He has written popular books about uh, everything from Social Security to the future of banking in this country. Larry and I had some scintillating conversations around the time of the financial crisis of 2007 and 2008. And... I uh, have been talking economics together at the Glitch Show every, ever since. And we're back because, uh, well, inflation is knocking at the door. Isn't that the economic story of the day, Larry? Yeah, it's running
1: around 6% a year. That's huge uh, compared to anything we've seen in 30 years. It's the highest number in 30 years. And so, you know, if you think about it, if you've got a money in a checking account, a lot of people are worried about the stock market. So they're just holding cash. Well, means that the real value of their money, their checking account goes down 6%. It means it buys 6% fewer hot dogs and lamps and uh, twenty-six 6% less real rent. So this is a real hit. It's a real tax. And I think we need to understand this as part of the fiscal operation of the country that the country is running a fiscal policy that isn't coming up with enough tax revenue to cover its spending short-term, let alone long-term, and consequently, it's printing money. We don't quite know how much, so that's something we should talk about, but you see countries that are in fiscal trouble print money and they then their prices rise. And yeah, we have supply chain kind of explanations, but there's some major concern about this inflation being a bigger deal than just short-term supply
0: bottlenecks. Okay, 6% is not high relative to some historical experience in the U.S. We would go back 40 years when you were a young uh, economic staffer at the Council for Economic Advisors in the Reagan administration. Inflation was running a lot higher than 6% when Jimmy Carter left office, wasn't it?
1: Yeah, it it got up to around 10%. Um, Just to be clear to all your listeners, I'm not a Republican or Democrat. I didn't actually vote for President Reagan. I was happy to help work for the country. <laughs> but.
0: No one said you belong to any party. I just said you work for the government. Yeah, most people
1: think if you know a guy works for Reagan, he must be a okay. long-term we, Republican.
0: We don't want to uh, paint you a don't want to be painted. Yeah. But, I mean, people should understand, 10% inflation per year, half your money is gone in, what, about four years?
1: Uh, yeah, because it's compounding. It's you know 1.1 times 1.1 times
0: Four and a half years, half your money is gone. At ten percent, at six percent, it might take six or seven years, but half your money will be gone. Yeah, uh, in a in a blink of an eye.
1: Yeah, so it's it's a very big thing. People on any, you know, think about Detroit, like firemen or or policemen, where Detroit went bankrupt and they had to settle in teachers. I don't know all the facts about that what happened in that settlement, but my understanding is that their pensions were cut, but then they were they're fixed in nominal terms, so they're just in dollars. So if you have 6% inflation, that means that the, unless I have this wrong, the firemen, the retired firemen and policemen and teachers in Detroit suffered a 6% hit. Their living center dropped 6% you know, in terms of what their pension could buy in one year.
0: Well, it depends on whether their benefit is indexed, right? If they've got an indexed uh, uh, defined benefit pension plan, then they'll adjust the payments for inflation. Well,
1: that's used to be the kind of the case thing, but not for this Detroit, not for a city that's broke, not, you know, that went through bankruptcy and came out with a settlement. Uh, and then while we're talking about there's lots of uh, companies that have gone belly up and where their pensions have been transformed into something less than they were promised and are fixed just in dollars. Uh, I think about Detroit airline pilots. Uh, After Detroit went through a bankruptcy and their pension was taken over by the Pension Benefit Guarantee Corporation, which I think was paying like 40 cents on the dollar. That's the kind of thing Uh, we, you know, we have to really understand and we haven't really done a careful study. And I'm I'm working on this as a research project to understand who gets hurt and by how much when you have unexpected inflation.
0: Okay. Let me just clarify to my own thinking. Which is that there's a difference between a bankrupt pension plan that has made commitments that it's not able to meet simply because it, it's not bringing in enough revenue to cover the commitments, as perhaps might have been the case in the city of Detroit, and a pension plan whose value is being eroded by uh, rising price levels when the benefits are fixed in nominal terms. Is, that's, a, that's a distinction we don't want to lose track of. Right. I mean, the state of Illinois is going bankrupt not because of the high inflation. But because they've made so many promises uh, to retired yeah. public employees that uh, they're just not able to raise enough taxes to cover yeah. the mm-hmm. uh, the obligations.
1: Yeah, I think, you know, there are, first of all, there aren't that many people anymore retiring with pensions. And the ones that are the fraction that are pe- retirement pensions that are inflation indexed, that are adjusted every year for inflation, I think is quite small. And then, of course, the ones you know we're getting pensions out coming out of the bankruptcy uh i think they're for sure nominal they're not inflation indexed uh, so you know this is a real issue for um people realize some people's wages are going up and you know keeping even with inflation so there's a lot of redistribution arising from from inflation uh, and i think the the uh You know, a lot of people say uh, uh, that uh, there have been articles uh, that the government spending is the cause of this, that the bottlenecks are the cause of this. uh, But we've had a history of, we don't know for sure uh, what exactly is the cause of of this. How much of it's bottlenecks? How much of it is pent up demand? How much of it is the government's just been printing so much money to pay for its bills? not just now but for decades Uh, so it's uh it's complicated it's not a a simple thing that you can kind of sit down and say well this is the reason for this price increase had the government just not done that we would not have the inflation
0: okay well one question is is this a transitory blip or have we entered in a, a, a new or different era
1: well that's that's also an interesting question because Part of, what I think, where, what inflation is about is, is there being a multiple equilibrium, multiple paths the economy can take with the spectrum of inflation. If, if everybody gets it into the mind that inflation is, is taking off, they get that expectation. Then if I've got a company, I'm going to start raising my prices because I know I got to keep my workers and I got to give them a higher raise. And then some other company says, sees me raising my prices and they raise their prices and then say, well, I've got to keep up with them. And they're trying to keep it. It So it can become a self-fulfilling prophecy. I think, you know, where people's expectations of more inflation or inflation accelerating take over. And if you look at the the, uh, hyperinflations we had in the last century, we had 22 hyperinflations. Each of those countries had fiscal problems out the wazoo. They were really, you know, like the Weimar Republic where people were being paid at lunchtime with wheelbarrows full of money. That, you know, for sure, that's the government printing money. But even if you look at that hyperinflation, the price level rose at a much more rapid clip than the increase in the printing of money, than the money was being printed. So let's say the government's printing, you know, just to give a very simple example, doubling the the amount of money in the economy over the course of the week, but prices are going up not by a factor of two, but by a factor of five. That's because people are expecting prices to go up even faster and they're making turning money into a hot potato. They don't want to hold the money because if by the end of the week, if they're worried that prices are going to, you know, yeah. going crazy and go and they say, gee, I don't want to hold this money, I'm going to run to the store and, and use it. So now we have more, faster money become, is really equivalent to more money in our basic economic theory. That's what's called right. the velocity. Let me share
0: with the readers this uh, famous formula, MV equals PQ. Right. Money times the velocity of money, the monetary stock times the velocity equals the price level times the quantity of goods right. that are being transacted. And you're just pointing out that a given monetary base can be more inflationary if people anticipate that tomorrow's money will be worth less and rush out to spend the day, which will increase the velocity with which money is being exchanged for
1: goods. It becomes a hot potato. And that's the V in that formula. So for, if M goes up by a certain percentage, but V is going up by a much, much bigger percentage, then for a given Y, which is the output, P can go up um, much more due to the V than due to the M increasing, and
0: now what's the yeah. evidence uh, to your mind that this kind of expectations-driven uh, self-fulfilling prophecy is playing out amongst us now?
1: Well, we don't. I don't. I don't know. I worry about this. I worry that the country that people start understanding that um, uh, that they start forming expectations. Think about. The weimar republic nobody knew during that hyperinflation exactly how much m was going up so they had to form judgments about how much is M going up and therefore how much should they how fast should they run to the store to get rid of their money how much how fast should they make v go up or think about argentina that um, had a uh, you know has had uh, periods in recent decades where the government would be reporting information about how much money they were printing, which nobody believed. So it was like there's no anchor in that context. People could say, well, maybe the government is tripling the money supply today just overnight. Uh, so uh, people are setting prices uh, in, in Argentina based on the exchange rate. The exchange rate was just being driven by expectations. So there's no kind of there. there there's no anchor That's when things can come unleashed.
0: Today's show sponsor is The Spectator magazine. Having been founded in 1828, it's the longest running magazine in the world. The mission statement they sent me says they believe that journalism must be witty and insightful and that ideas should be discussed without the constant threat of cancellation. They're neither right or left wing and consider their mission to convey intelligence, not ideology. They believe that life is bigger than politics, which is why the magazine covers arts, culture, food, wine, travel, and life all around. The slogan they use to convey this is, the spectator is more cocktail party, less political party. So sign up today and you'll receive three free months of both the print and digital magazine, plus a free spectator hat. Just use offer code Glenn, G-L-E-N-N at checkout to redeem the special offer just for listeners of this podcast. Go to spectatorworld.com forward slash special offer and use offer code Glenn. I've been aware of The Spectator for many years and feel comfortable saying that even if you disagree with its politics, you are guaranteed to be entertained. Their contributors include many prominent and sometimes controversial authors from Christopher Buckley to PJ O'Rourke to Douglas Murray to Slavoj Žižek, from the Biden administration to book reviews, from cancel culture to cultural cuisine, The Spectator will entertain you from cover to cover. So sign up today to get three months of The Spectator for free, plus a free Spectator hat when you subscribe at spectatorworld.com forward slash special offer. Use offer code Glenn at checkout To redeem your offer at spectatorworld.com forward slash special offer and offer code Glenn. Am Am I naive to think that whereas Weimar Germany or Argentina of more recent times might have had monetary policies which were not transparent? We here in the United States of America can see the books of the Federal Reserve. And know exactly what uh, the uh, monetary policy of the government has been and therefore are not as much in the dark about how M is changing as people may have been in those examples you were citing.
1: Well, th- this is where I wanted to get into uh, this discussion with you, because, you know, the MV equals PY formula, that's the quantity theory that a lot of kids lived in, learned in um, introductory economics, a lot of your yeah. viewers, that's a static Framework, But we live in a, an economy that's intertemporal, j- dynamic, going through time. So the Fed could, the government could print more money today and let's say print a lot of money and buy a lot of uh, uh, airplanes for the Air Force, okay? And then uh, five years from now, they could taken a lot of money with, by a big tax increase. So just think about the amount of money out there in the economy, not at a point in time, but kind of through time. So we might have a big increase now, but a big decrease in the future. If people think, well, the Fed is gonna be adjusting, maybe they'll kind of overdo it this year, but in the future, they're gonna underdo it. So that through time, we're gonna have a reasonable path of the, of the money supply. Then you've got even more uncertainty about this whole process, and and what the Fed's up to is partly working with the Treasury just to print money to buy lunch for the president. But part of what it's doing, which makes this very complicated to see what's going on from the from the numbers, even if you can, and we can we can trust our government's numbers, is that the Fed is engaging in financial transactions. So let's say I'm a Federal Reserve Chairman. Uh, Jerome Powell, and I take a, a billion dollars and I buy some uh, Tesla stock, just suppose it is some security or some bond, Tesla bond. Uh, so I'm printing money, I'm buying this asset, I'm inject. So I'm taking, printing I know, a billion dollars, of green piece of paper, putting them out into the economy. We got more money chasing the same amount of goods, we kind of think in, in the EC 101 concept. And I've taken back this asset on the, so now the fed, uh, uh, has added to the money supply, but how can say, and everybody else can say, or think, well, in three years, I'm going to take that Tesla stock or those Tesla bonds and sell them back into the market and take the money back out. So the feds engaged in these uh, portfolio transactions at the same time, it's just printing money for the president's lunch. And we can't really tell from the Fed's balance sheet because there's uh, it's very complicated to understand. You, you really can't necessarily break it out how much of this is a, a pure, you know, uh, paying for the government's bills by printing money because it might be doing some of that now, but less of it in the future. So it's a whole intertemporal inter- path of policy. But the one thing that you can be assured of is if you have a projection of a path of, of fiscal policy, taxes and, and uh, outlays that don't match up, which is our country's situation, then you know that through, the, through time, this path has gotta be one where there's a lot of printing of money to pay for the government's bills. And I think the public may be, may be understanding that. I mean, I've been claiming, I mean, talking about this, not, you know, trying to point this out, for decades now, I've written books called *The Clash of Generations*, *The Coming Generational Storm*. The fact that our long-term finances are leaving enormous bills for our kids, and when the, um, you know, when the Fed, when we have inflation, we get hurt. You know, we just talked about the fact that somebody got a checking account or a pension lost six percent this year. Who's getting helped? If we're getting hurt, the public's getting hurt. It's the government that's getting helped. This is. Really, that, what's called the senior rich tax, the inflation tax. And uh, so I think there's going to be a strong, there's a strong tendency of, of countries that are broke through time to try and rely on the senior rich tax until they realize that all they're doing is producing inflation. The economy gets used to high inflation. And that's very destructive to the economy, ultimately, in terms of.
0: Okay, let, let me slow you down a bit. Um- Let's get just very basic. Okay, maybe I've been a little bit too. Your example of the Federal Reserve buying some shares of Tesla stock and putting money into the economy. Now, naively, I'm thinking, okay, that stock had to be bought from somebody who was holding Tesla stock as an asset. They weren't spending it on goods. They were holding the stock as an asset. Now they've got money as an asset. It doesn't mean they're going to spend that on goods. They might turn around and invest that money in some other asset. How is it necessarily inflationary for the Federal Reserve to uh, uh, purchase uh, shares of uh, Tesla stock?
1: Well, the idea um, is that the money, you know, the, the, the theory, uh, like a Milton Friedman would be saying, is that unlike Tesla stock, money is being used in transactions. So it's, it's, it has a special role in impacting the price level. And that's why money is, you know, it's M times V equals P times Y. There's M in that equation, not Tesla stock. So because it's got, it's being used for transactions, and it it makes uh, uh, people be, be able to to spend uh, more rapidly. But but you're right. The uh, we don't have. And that's a, a very important question, and Friedman might have it, you know, have had it basically wrong. Uh, insofar as people could be taking in this money, swapping it for Tesla stock and just holding it, right? How does that affect any of their transactions? It it doesn't, but if they get into their mind that, um, gee, I better dump this, uh, the prices are rising. I'm gonna go buy some furniture from Ikea because that's gonna retain its value. They can do that really quickly. And maybe they, you know, whereas, Maybe they're less reluctant, more reluctant to try and cash out their Tesla stock. And uh, they can't collectively do that. Um, They can sell to each other. But in the end.
0: okay. Uh, another question just to clarify. So you're using this metaphor, print money to pay for the president's lunch, which, as I understand it means. uh, Underwrite the cost of President Biden's, I don't know, Build Back Better program by uh, engaging in activities at the Federal Reserve that have the consequence of causing the money supply to increase. Presumably, there's not literally a printing press, greenbacks and money falling out of helicopters on people. Can you just explain explicitly what the institutional processes are that translate? Um, Because the president is telling everybody his uh, expenditure plans are, quote unquote, paid for. He says everything is paid for. Uh, Is he lying to us? Uh, What's going on? Uh, Can you break down the process by which uh, budgetary finance at the federal level in the trillions translates into more money circulating around and therefore uh, possibly more
1: inflation? Okay. So let me, there's kind of two questions here. One is how does does this kind of process work and then, or how how might it work uh, where we pay for the president's lunch or whatever, or Build Back Better. And then how much is Build Back Better adding to inflationary pressures or to, to new spending? Uh, uh-huh. But so, uh, you know, suppose that they wanted to extend uh child tax credits to pouring poor households with kids for a couple more years as part of this bill or to subsidize electric car purchases. So, the Treasury needs to uh, to send out, let's say, a subsidy check or a tax credit check. Uh, and what the Treasury might do is print up an orange piece of paper, go to you, Glenn, and borrow the money, and then use that money to uh, give it to a poor person as a ch- child tax credit. Now, you're holding an orange piece of paper. I, the Fed... And electronically print money and come and buy your orange federal treasury bond and what i've if you look through that whole process the money i took from you when i gave you the um you know i gave you an orange piece of paper you gave me some green paper i took the green paper i bought i gave it to somebody else and then the fed printed up some new green paper gave it to you in exchange, exchange for the orange paper if you look through that in the end the feds holding the orange piece of paper it started with the treasury but there's more money out there in the hands of that poor person and uh and so this is just printing money to pay for the social program now biden for his and you know, his economists would say uh in his defense that uh first of all we have taxes that uh, we are raising as part of this bill to cover uh, these costs, and I would have to look more closely. He'd also might, might say that if we give, uh, uh, these poor households a better chance for their kids in life, that 20 years from now, they're going to be more productive. Therefore our economy will be bigger. And if Y is bigger for the M, same M and V, the P will be lower. So it's a dynamic process that this is investment in human capital not in physical capital, not in infrastructure. And he, he might be right. So spending in the short run, if you're spending wisely, might be more like an investment than, even though it seems like it's just a giveaway, uh, if we're investing, let's say, in somebody's healthcare. If we wanna, they want to expand Medicaid in the 13 or so states which haven't expanded Medicaid up to the Obamacare limit. Uh, so they're saying, well, gee, if we can get these people in front of their GPs, so they have annual checkups, we might prevent uh, permanent disabilities that they might otherwise end up with, right? So that's the sense in which this thing is not a, an easy thing to think about. But when you do look at the Congressional Budget Office's projections, and not just under Biden, but Trump and Bush and Carter and Clinton, and go back, If you look at the long run projections of taxes and outlays, you see uh, things getting worse. That the fiscal gap, the present value, the value in the present of all those outlays, take all those outlays, add them up in the way economists do, which is take, you know, some dollar in the future is not necessarily worth the same as the dollar today, uh, because you're gonna invest in the economy and it would grow to a height through time. So but take the value in the present of all those future outlays, take the value in the present of all the future uh, receipts. Look at the difference. That's the fiscal gap. As a share of GDP, that's the highest ratio of any country in the developed world. We're in the worst fiscal shape and other countries have done this calculation. And I do this calculation every year using the CBO numbers. Nobody in our government does it. The European Union does it. For every European Union member, every three years, on an official basis. So okay, again,
0: I want to I want to slow you down because there's just so much coming out here. Uh, First of all, I think your argument that uh, build back better might actually not be as budgetary harmful as one might think because it enhances productivity. Seems to assume that the dollars invested by the government in, let's say, healthcare have a higher return than those dollars invested in the private sector would have had had they not been uh, taxed away. I don't know how you know that that's true.
1: I, I don't know. Secondly, I just yeah. wanted to
0: observe, you didn't mention Obama in that list of presidents, and if I'm not mistaken, the outstanding national debt doubled under his tenure, didn't
1: it? Yeah, I, I'm, I'm sorry that's an omission. Uh, didn't mean any respect to Obama. I have a lot of respect for for him for his, the job he did. Um, well, yeah. what I said was correct. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, but let me just point out You know, if you think about this infrastructure bill, they have these big price tag numbers. People think about, you know, $2 trillion infrastructure bill. I think that's what it ended up as. I think it started out originally it was going to be $3 trillion. But if you look at the new spending, these bills always include kind of renewed spending, like maintenance of highways that we've been doing every year after year. But So if you ask, what is the new spending on this 10-year bill? And I just read an article by Steve Radner just the other day. In the New York Times, the yeah. only thing I really got I out of it hard. were the numbers because I thought his analysis was very naive and uh, indicative of somebody who wasn't thinking very deeply or understanding very deeply this whole process. Uh, okay. okay, the same thing with the Larry Summers. I think these guys are jumping on the bandwagon. We see inflation; these guys are now the inflation hawks
0: wait a minute larry larry summers is the bandwagon it's it's people jumping on him <laughs> he's he's the former secretary of the right. treasury well he's a, et cetera but that he, anyway Harris- I,
1: came I, out and said you know recently we're going to have much higher inflation then Radner raises this thing i predicted inflation was going to be higher and therefore aren't i smart um but, Rainer- but you
0: would distinguish between Radner and and summers right i mean summers is a, is a real economist well, I'm asking, well, I'm asking. I don't know. Question. When
1: I read his stuff, I don't see, I I'm not hearing, reading a real economist. I'm not reading real economics. I'm reading a politician, my view, to tell you the truth. I don't think. Do we know? Radner him? is a protege of Summers. They all sound the same. He's got a whole list of proteges who worked in the council under Obama, under Clinton, uh, t- entire court to read that, had, that sound just the same and I think are mistaken on the same basis but one interesting thing in radner's article which is another fact not a any uh diagnosis uh-huh. was it uh he said the new spending on infrastructure in this bill is 500 something like 550 billion dollars now divide that by 10 years This is a 10-year bill that's 50 billion dollars a year we have a 20, 22 fee. 22 trillion dollar gdp this right. is chicken feed this is So what the members of Congress did, the Democrats, is they basically renewed the spending they were doing. Otherwise, they added a little bit, and they said, "Well, it's a big number, because but it's a ten-year number, and it's not really that we're you know dramatically improving the infrastructure in our country. We're going to do some good, some new good, but it's it's not that big a deal because and and had they presented it in a way that said, look. This is the best we can get out of the Republicans. It's not anything near what we need. It's only like a, you know, a half of 1% increase per year uh, uh, in the economy investment. We're way under investing still, but this is, we're gonna pass this today, but this is not a big money, money sink and it's an investment to begin with. So let's not worry about it in terms of uh, spending that is reckless because, but now they're being painted as being reckless spenders because they're spent two trillion dollars. So people, anything in the trillion sounds scary, right? And then you got that. Numbers. They want to
0: sound like they're doing the New Deal uh, 2.0, don't they? They they want to make the point that they're changing the direction of the country by.
1: This is uh, not the New Deal.
0: Pro-union, by, uh, you know, public investments, by. I'm saying that, you that they're. Know,
1: they're just like the Trump administration engaged lots of propaganda, made, made themselves sound, yeah. puffed themselves up to uh, make it sound like they were doing something useful, like that Tax Cut and Jobs Act. I did a very careful study uh, with the Federal Reserve Bank of Atlanta and other... Economists. This
0: is the Trump administration yeah, policy you're talking 2017 about.
1: 2017 Tax Cut and Jobs Act. Yeah. And they said, they you know, said this enormous tax cut, we're really cutting taxes. If you look... Uh the, the median tax cut was one and a half percent of lifetime uh resources. It wasn't a huge thing. It was something, but one and a half percent. If I say, Glenn, I'm gonna cut your taxes over the rest of your life by one and a half percent, are you gonna party over that? Is that gonna make your day? But they never advertise that fact. But that that is actually the fact. Anybody can go to Kotlikoff.net. Find the article I wrote about what well, was a comparison of blue and red states. So just search for blue and red under articles. Actually read every single article I've got posted there and every column because it'll take you a year or two. But you'll know everything <laughs> I know. <laughs>
0: a short course in economics from Larry Kotlikoff. Yeah. If you got the time, it's to be recommended. But go ahead and make your point, Larry.
1: Well, I'm saying <laughs> that, that uh, what's really going on is... Um, uh, is not necessarily conveyed by uh, uh, what the press is saying about, about the situation. And the, um, the one underlying truth that we know is that the economy is a long-term prospect, uh, proposition, and we have to look long-term. We have to think about the dynamic path the economy is on. And when you look at the CBO numbers through time, they look worse and worse. This fiscal gap, this 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 gap in, in where's the money going to come to cover Social Security and Medicare as the population gets older. Uh, we have like 75 million baby boomers, almost all retired. They're all collecting Social Security, uh, almost all now. Medicare. Uh, these big bills are coming due. and um, And we're leaving them for our kids. And that's when countries fail through time, because what happens is that you take so much money from young people in in the form of, well, let's say you, you either surreptitiously tax them by, by printing money and producing inflation. It's like a silent secret tax, a hidden tax, or you explicitly tax them, but you take resources from the young, give them to the, to the old. Then the young have nothing from which they can save. And therefore, our saving rate before COVID, our saving rate was like 3%. It used to be 15% in the 1950s. It was, well, no, 13% in the 1950s. So we've gone with our national saving rate straight downhill, which is exactly what you would predict if you were to take money, transfer from young savers to give to old spenders and do this over seven decades, starting with Eisenhower. He was the one who dramatically jacked up Social Security. I'm not saying we don't need a Social Security system, you know, a a compulsory saving system, but we don't need to pay for our pensions on the back of our kids, okay? We should, each generation should cover its own bills, is my view. That's That's the view, by the way, Thomas Jefferson. He was the first one to really worry publicly about the debt.
0: Well, hold on, I, I just wanna ask this uh, question about comparison to other nations because you alluded to this earlier. You say that the European Central Bank publishes country by country data on the fiscal gap relative to GDP for the various member countries. The United States tr- uh, Treasury, Office of Management and Budget, whatever, won't do this. Uh, you do it in the, on the back of your own envelope over there at Kotlikoff.net. Uh, what are you learning? How does the US differ from other countries? Why does the US differ from other countries? What are the implications of the fact that the US is a relative outlier amongst wealthy countries in its uh relative magnitude of its fiscal gap?
1: Well, first of all, so it's not the European Central Bank, it's the European Union, and they have something called the European Council. And okay. and the publication, if you if you search for S2 indicator, and you go to like page 70, you'll find uh, the S2 ratio It's basically the ratio of what share of GDP are you short every year for the rest of time to cover the fiscal, to close the fiscal gap. In our country, for our country, it's about eight percentage points of GDP. That's a huge number. Did you say 80? Eight, eight percentage points. Oh, eight percentage Now, right, okay. all of the social security outlay, outlays, all of the social security benefit payments are around four percentage points. So it's like two social security programs. So that's the sense in which... Is, is,
0: that's the gap. That's, the, that's how much our obligations exceed yeah. our, our capacity to
1: meet. Through time. And now, if you look for Germany, it's about three percentage points of GDP. If you look at Italy, Italy has a very large official debt, but they have very low off-the-book debts. Most of our debts are off the books, like the, the obligation to pay me social security benefits. I started collecting yeah. this year. I'm 70. I wait until 70. I'm collecting a check every month. That's an obligation yeah. that was, that's not part of the official government debt because it was just classified as a transfer payment to me rather than a IOU to me. For most yeah. of our debts, about seven out of eight dollars worth of debt, a fiscal gap is off the books, of obligations are off the books. So uh, why don't we do it in our country? Why do these other countries do, do these calculations? because those other countries have responsible leaders. They have responsible citizens. Uh, if you go to New Zealand, I went to New Zealand to uh, do a gig with the uh, treasury of New Zealand. They asked me to be a fellow there for 10, 10 days and give talks around the country. So I get there, I land at the airport. I take a taxi to uh, to Wellington, to the hotel. It's a beautiful country, lovely people. And I started hearing this fight on the radio between, you know, it's a talk show and both the radio talk show host and the person were, they're shouting. It wasn't really a fight. They were both shouting the same thing. How outrageous it was that the, that the um, pension superannuation fund, which is their Social Security fund system was like 1% underfunded. They were outraged. that The new report had just come out that morning. And they had this absolutely trivially small shortfall, the fiscal gap in that program, whereas we have a fiscal gap in Social Security, according to the trustees' report that just came out a couple months ago, that's fifty nine trillion dollars. Our official debt is a hundred, is about twenty two trillion dollars. Right. Our Social Security unfunded liability on, on Table Six F One of the trustees report. You can just, everybody can Google 2021 one U S Social Security trustees report and then go to table Roman 6F1 and you'll see this number, 59 trillion. And then go look at the size of the official debt according to the CBO that's in the hands of the public. It's 22 trillion. This is off the books debt. And that's, we're not including, you know, the obligations to keep funding the military, blah, 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 blah.
0: you know it can be really hard to find the right book or audiobook or podcast with all the content that's available to us today you could spend as much time looking for your next book as you actually spend reading it but with scribd you get instant access to millions of ebooks audiobooks magazines and more you also get thoughtfully curated editor's picks and smart recommendations based on what you've read which makes choosing your next book that much simpler. I've had personal experience with Scribd, and I really enjoy it. So I'm urging you to consider subscribing. With Scribd, the world's most fascinating library is at your fingertips. It's all for just $9.99 a month. You can explore all of your interests in any format, millions of ebooks, audiobooks, magazines, and more you'll enjoy instant access to Scribd's entire library for less than the cost of a single book. It couldn't be simpler. No complicated credits or additional purchases. Right now, Scribd is offering our listeners a free 60-day trial. Go to try.scribd, S-C-R-I-B-D, dot com, slash Glenn to get your free trial. That's try. That's Scribd, scrib com slash Glenn with two N's to get 60 days of Scribd for free. You won't be sorry. Why isn't the obvious implication of the situation you described that I can predict that in a certain number of years, the government is going to renege on its promises and ex post facto adjust To reality, its capacity to meet smaller obligations than those that it has announced. Well, why can't they simply do that? There's nothing to keep a Congress uh, from changing the benefit plan.
1: Well, I think we will uh, renege on our debt. We We are reneging on our government debt in real time. As you and I speak, prices are going up. So the $22 trillion of official government debt that's outstanding, is being watered down, its nominal debt okay. by 6%. By inflation. It was just watered down by 6%. So, one of the things that Radner got wrong and that Summers get, got wrong in their recent articles is that they're not realizing that this is a form of fiscal policy running inflation and that you make money, governments make money by making money. When they make money and it leads to prices going up, uh, they water down the real value of the debt. Right after World War II, we had a 25% inflation when they took off price controls. So during World War II, we sold all these government bonds. We promised to pay back these coupon payments. Prices go up by 25% in, I think it's 1945, uh, 25%. And that reduces the real value instantaneously by, 20, by a quarter of the outstanding government debt uh, that was all racked up during World War II. So... Uh, this is actually a fiscally, you know, inflation is a fiscally conservative thing. Here, Radner's art writing about this huge, enormous uh, spending spree by Biden. And then at the same breath, he says it's five, $550 billion new in infrastructure spending. Isn't that enormous? It's minor. It's trivial. Comp- you divide it by 10 years, it's $550 billion a year. It's nothing. $55 but. This is this is the disconnect. This is the problem I have with but, these guys. You know, they're, not, they're, writing to get, they're writing to write. They're not writing to to teach.
0: Okay, that's them. Uh, but among these economists, aren't they with you, kind of hawkish on the inflation question relative to, I don't know, Joe Sticklitz or Paul Krugman, who might be saying, let's not worry about it. Build Back Better is the best thing since sliced bread.
1: Well, Krugman's got, you know, my major differences with him, uh, they're different, but the, um, a lot of economists don't necessarily see inflation as a fiscally, as a, a tax, as, a, as actually a fiscally conservative move to be raising. Look, if we ran a, tw- a 20% inflation this year, we would dr- drop, de- reduce the value of the official government debt by 20%, by a fifth. Now, the problem is for our country, we have all these other off-the-book debts that are indexed to inflation that you can't actually get out from under by running inflation. So ultimately, inflation isn't that ver- isn't a very good way of raising real revenues, because everybody's inflating. So security uh, is going to be adjusted every year based on the COLA. So uh, governments that are going broke try in the short run to make some extra money by making money, but then. Inflation takes off and then the public starts understanding that they're getting taxed and, and then you have, and then Glenn, you're saying, well, okay, so ultimately this will get fixed up. We'll understand we got a problem and we'll adjust things. What will we do? We'll cut benefits. We're not going to cut benefits of the elderly, They're too strong a political force, we'll raise, try and raise taxes on the young, even more. Well, at some point, the young will do what the young did in Ecuador when tax rates got up to 70 percent. They left Ecuador. They moved to Spain. A half a million of them did. No, Uruguay. It's not Ecuador. Uruguay. Uh The history of Uruguay. Because I was actually there and talked to them about what went on there. So uh, you can only get so. And so the other thing that people need to understand is this dynamic when a country doesn't. When you take from the young as much as you can, and there's a limit, you can only take every penny they earn to give to away to some older person. when you take that money and they cannot save it, then through time, your country is poorer in terms of its well ownership of wealth, but it might have a lot of GDP it might not have a lot of output because other countries are coming and investing in your country they're bringing their wealth to work in your country, but you actually are poor you're working for the You know, think about a correct Caribbean island. The Chinese, Larry, the Chinese. We're working for the Chinese. The Chinese have like a 30% saving (laughs) rate. We have a 3% saving rate, national saving rate. That's exactly. Think about, go to a Caribbean island. Look at all the capital there in the hotels and so forth. The people are dirt poor. They have no wealth. There's a lot of capital there. It's all owned by foreigners. That's where we're heading as a country we're heading to second-rate status. Not
0: Okay. Let, let me ask you something else. I'm old enough to remember guys like uh, Alan Greenspan, Paul Volcker. Yeah. And, and they loom in my mind uh, as a young economist watching the economic policy debate unfold as, you know, hawkish, kind of uh, severe, strict, central banker, inflation-fighting sons of bitches. It sounds like we need... A couple of those guys is Jerome Powell that kind of guy. I mean, is Janet Yellen that kind of guy? Pardon the, you know, you know what I'm saying.
1: Yeah. So what I'm trying to part of what I'm trying to convey is that this whole dynamic is one of expectations of what gets into people's mind. And so far, the Fed, in recent decades, the Fed has been very successful uh, in persuading people that we're going to have very low inflation. That if we're printing a lot of money now, we'll reduce it in the future. We have lots of ways to do it. Uh, it's all very obscure. Their their books are honest, but they're hard to, you can't necessarily see how much they're printing for the president's lunch because they're engaging in so many transactions that make it very opaque. I can't break it out. Nobody can, uh, to tell you the truth. You kind of see it when you see it. You see it when the prices go up. And the prices can go up when it gets into people's mind. It can go up even more when it gets into everybody's mind that prices are going up. Therefore, I got to raise my price and everything. So you can lose control. So you're absolutely right that there's this psychological element here that's very important. And Greenspan was great in controlling the psychology. Uh, Powell, I think, is pretty good at it. I think Janet Yellen's pretty good at it. They're both, they've both. they got most people convinced we've got bottlenecks, supply side chain issues, and we're not going to have long-term inflation because the long-term inflation uh, – Nominal bond rate on treasuries, I just looked yesterday, is 2%. If you invest in a U.S. treasury, put $100,000 or 10000 in a U.S. treasury bill, bond, 30 years later, you're going to earn 2%, 200, uh, well, what's 2% of uh, of $10,000? Uh, it's $200 a year, right? If I got that right?
0: 2% two, two of $30,000. Oh, $10,000.
1: $10, 6
0: two uh, percent of, of two hundred dollars a year ten thousand
1: dollars at two hundred dollars' yeah, two hundred dollars for you glenn Lowry to, to today or tomorrow go and buy a ten thousand dollar treasury bond uh from you from Treasury direct some you know from the u s government they're going to promise to pay you for the next thirty years two hundred dollars and everybody seems to think that that's a reasonable investment that inflation it's not going to be 6% a year. It's going to be 6% just this year, but next year it's going to go down to nothing. They've got that in their mind. They're, otherwise, the bond market would not be...
0: They'd have to think that. Otherwise, they'd require a bigger interest uh, payment promise oh, from the Fed. In so I want to tell you
1: your, your viewers here that you have to be out of your mind to be buying long-term uh, bonds, either corporate bonds or government bonds, yielding these very low rates because the risk of inflation is so dramatically is so high in my view. Uh, so I want to warn people away from that. I want to warn people from buying anything that's coming at you like an annuity, like a, you, know, you go to an insurance company, you get put down some money and you get a stream of income that continues until you die. that's not adjusted for inflation. You can
0: get one Well, if less. people follow your advice, the price of these securities is going to fall the nominated in uh right. nominal terms and that means interest rates are going to rise which is going to make it uh hard to invest and it's going to put a brake on on the economy and so we should expect more unemployment and so forth. I do you want to see a recession in order to uh quell the uh well, inflation fires well,
1: this economy this is the I mean. this econo- our economy historically has done very well with prices declining over Many years, it's done very well with prices rising. If if prices are rising, let's say every year at six percent, but everybody knows that, uh, and, the, and the and the and the and everybody's getting a raise, and everything's being adjusted, the tax system, and our tax system is not fully indexed by a mile, and Social Security benefit kind of thresholds beyond which you're taxed on your Social Security benefit, everything's adjusting properly for inflation, which it's not. Then we can live with. High, you know, higher inflation, it's uh, where people are not kind of expecting it, and then they get socked, they, they invested 2% and the inflation rate turns out to be 6% or 10% and they get wiped out. That's the big problem. Inflation is like an unexpected tax. It's something coming at you from right field.
0: Now, didn't the late Marty Feldstein argue uh, along these lines as to why indexing should be more widely practiced uh, in, in practice than financial? Yeah,
1: Marty, Marty Feldstein, my my thesis director and good friend, ah. passed away a couple of years ago. Yeah. Um, but he, yeah, he was a brilliant economist, former chairman of Council of Economic Advisors, and right. he he started so many different fields in economics, say, like health economics and unemployment economics of unemployment, and. Uh, economics of the of the art market and also he worked it worked on the interaction of inflation and taxation he should have gotten the nobel prize i think because he, he started so many subfields. but he probably yeah. passed away at a fairly young age um so anyway now i lost your question
0: <laughs> the question was wasn't he a big proponent of indexing for precisely the reasons that you are alluding to
1: yes we he was a big proponent and most of our a good chunk of our you know federal income taxes inflation index, but our state income taxes are basically are not uh, they're periodically adjusted, and then you've got things like uh, think about the Medicare Part B premium that you are where you retired, you and I are both working still, but where we retired, we'd go on to Medicare and pay probably Medicare Part B premium if we weren't well, we would have to no matter what Medicare plan we chose. But yeah there's a tax schedule. There's basically, it's a premium schedule. It's no different from an income tax schedule. If your uh, income two years in the past goes like a dollar higher than some threshold, bingo, you get, to, you get hit with an extra $800 in Medicare Part B pr- uh, premiums for that year. So it's like four thresholds. None of these are indexed for inflation. There's a whole bunch of things that the Republicans put in and the Democrats put in without anybody knowing you're talking about it publicly or acknowledging it, that are an index that lead to a higher tax burden. So so what Feldstein was kind of warning against is actually very much still in there in the federal uh, fiscal system and very much in the state fiscal system. One of the things Ratner was saying, which was interesting, I don't want to be too tough on these guys because they do come up with some interesting facts. He was yep. talking about how how good the inflation was for, state revenues, because their brackets aren't indexed for inflation. If you think about California, it's got a bunch of brackets. I think it's got several brackets. It goes up to 13% top tax rate.
0: Uh, Let me just explain to people that we're talking about progressive state income taxation, where you pay a higher fraction of your income if your income is in a higher income bracket. But as inflation causes everybody's income to go up with prices and their real Earnings have not changed. They are being triggered at higher proportionate tax rates simply by the fact that the brackets are nominally and not uh, relatively uh, fixed, designated.
1: Yeah, absolutely right. So yeah, so these things that Marty warned warned about are are definitely happening still. So so you know you could say quite (laughs) clearly that Biden is running a very fiscally conservative policy. He's running. A more fisc- that There's a much more fiscally conservative policy this year than most people understand. That he's raised taxes, but he's lowered the national debt in real terms because of this inflation. But he's done a bunch of good things on the fiscal side, and Radner was kind of getting at that a little bit. Uh, but the um, you know I, what I would like to see Janet Yellen, uh, uh, Jerome Powell the president, top economic advisors, all talking about publicly is the long-term trajectory of the country. Can we pay for what we're spending without printing money through time? That's the number one big question about inflation that needs to be publicly addressed by our officials. And it certainly was not addressed by Trump. He didn't understand anything about any of this stuff. The guy is an absolute- But his
0: thing's now stand, The answer to that question has to be no.
1: No, yeah, we're- fiscally insolvent so we are on a, an inflationary trajectory long term i think that's we economists you know we refer to this as the fiscal theory of the price level that prices ultimately if you're not going to pay for government spending with taxes you're going to have to print money that's basically uh the foundational kind of view these days of of inflation that uh, and and uh that prices are going to have to adjust in order to um, water down these liabilities that the government has uh, outstanding. So you you make money by wiping out the government debt bond uh, debt, for example. That's part of the fiscal theory of the price level. That prices will adjust not because there's more money necessarily transacting, which is like the old Milton Friedman view, but because things are going to adjust uh because people kind of anticipate higher money printing so prices just jump up right now and bingo the real value of your debt goes down so you get an immediate fiscal adjustment Uh, so there's a major theory out there that economists have you know been developing been refining called the fiscal theory of the price level it's not the modern monetary theory it's called the fiscal which is just saying you got to pay for what the government spends some way or another and if you're not going to do it through taxes, you're going to have to do it through printing money. And that's going to have implications for the whole path of prices, but also the, the current level, the initial level of prices might jump up.
0: Now uh, You've made it clear that you're a Democrat, not a Republican. No, 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 no. I ran uh, as
1: an independent, right?
0: Oh, I'm sorry. I beg your pardon. But I, I got the Obama did a great job and, you know, Trump was an asshole sentiment from you. It, it, but in any case, I don't need to put a label Trump on was you, the question asshole, I'm trying to not ask
1: because of what is, Not because of his economic policy, okay. his economic policy was not so bad or good. It, it, didn't, it was basically met, very little, nothing particularly uh, good, nothing particularly bad. We had to do a lot of good things, and he didn't do them. He's an asshole because he's an asshole.
0: Yeah. Yep. Okay. <laughs> um, I'm, what I'm trying to ask you, though, is do you see anybody active in American politics you know, today <laughs> Who you think understands uh the kind of stuff that you're talking about and uh, could provide the national leadership that we that we need to get serious about dealing with our uh you know our indebtedness
1: i really can't you know the i mean J- joe Manchin. uh i think he is in the pocket of the energy uh, the fossil fuel industry so i have ma- major difficulties with him uh on climate.
0: For that reason, not because of his uh, fiscal concerns, He was talking
1: about it, but he's also got it all screwed up. And, you know, he looks at this inflation. He says it's being, you know, we can't spend this money, the extra 50 billion on infrastructure per year uh, and it's causing inflation and therefore uh, this is, fisc- you know, we're, we're going to cause more. He doesn't get the fact that we've actually just made money by printing money, uh, by, by by having inflation, that we've actually generated real revenues for the government. But he is at least, you know, sounding like a mature adult, like somebody who cares about his grandchildren, about somebody who cares about how we're going to pay for all these bills. Do we want another entitlement program if we can't spend, can't pay for the current ones? If you look at the trustees report, so screwed. So I guess, you know, Manchin might be my favorite of this entire group. But I think, I think there are some other senators on both sides of the aisle that are grown-ups. Uh Senator Thune, Senator Wyden. Yeah, these are people. Tim Penny, um, no, no, that's the wrong name. I'm I'm blanking. Um anyway. I, but I, is there anybody who's gonna, you know, come forward to uh run uh against Biden or against Trump, who I would love to see run. I can't I don't see that happening.
0: Well, maybe we'll have to do it ourselves, Larry.
1: You want to be the president? Or you want to be the vice president on our ticket? Yeah.
0: I think I'll be the president if I have a choice.
1: Lowry and Kotlikov, twenty twenty eight or twenty twenty four. Let's be old enough. A, <laughs> you're, you're the better looking. Yeah, right. <laughs> I'm old enough for sure. We'll <laughs> be the best looking candidates, and uh, you're the better looking. So uh, we should definitely Larry be, be on God. the top of the ticket. And. uh I'll um, yeah, let's do it. When are we going to announce? When will we announce? Let's announce on the Glenn Show at some point.
0: <laughs> okay, <laughs> a future Glenn Show. That was Larry Kotlikoff. We've been talking to for the last hour. He's a professor at Boston University. My old friend, economist extraordinaire, Kotlikoff K O T L I K O double F.
1: Thanks, Larry. Hey, always fun. Yeah, it was. Up. Talk to you again soon. Yeah, yeah absolutely.